Good morning, church family. It's always a good day to be in the house of the Lord and to be back with each of you. So we're going to continue our, ser- our sermon series in Luke chapter 12. And uh, as I was preparing for the sermon today, uh, it struck me that I've been living in the triangle since 2006. Anybody been living here since 2000? Okay, I see those five hands. And because uh, <laughs> everybody here is new. The triangle is growing very, very fast. And, uh, and one thing that I've seen as well as a trend in that growth is the growth of the mini storage industry. Uh, if you go around, you'll, you'll see a max storage or storage max, uh, public storage, B safe storage, you know, with the little B in it, two E's, life storage, and my favorite, uh, extra attic self-storage. And so don't get me wrong, there are times in life when we need a mini storage unit. Perhaps you're moving or you're, you have a summer internship that takes you far away. Or uh, if you own a little small business, you need some extra space for your inventory. There's certainly times we need a storage unit, but I don't think we need a storage unit per capita in Raleigh to make it work. I just don't. I think the issue is is that we have way too much stuff. And since we can't quite build bigger barns, we rent a mini barn from King Storage USA. Which gets at one of the main uh, themes of the passage today, and it's after being interrupted by uh, a question, Jesus gives an illustration of a man who had a massive bumper crop that year, and he's trying to figure out, what am I going to do with all my resources that this crop has given me? And he says, you know what? I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger ones. He thought he had it made. He thought he had it all figured out. He says, I'm going to relax, eat drink, and be merry. And so some of you guys might be uh, thinking, man, I got my coworker or my family member or my neighbor to come to church, and this man is going to be up here preaching about money. Let me calm your, your fears just for a moment. So at Imago Day, as you guys know, we preach through books of the Bible, and we do our best to expose God's intended meaning of the text to us, and then apply it to our lives. And so I'm not up here preaching any pet topics, We're just walking through the Word of God. The Bible sets the agenda for us every week. And then secondly, also, I'm not going to set you guys up for a big um, offering at the end of the service either. (laughs) So that's, that's not the agenda here. By God's grace and by your generosity, our church is doing well in that way. And so, uh, so rest easy for the next little bit. But there are a couple things I think that this text is helpful for us with. So God cares about how you relate to your money because it says something about your heart. God cares about how you relate to your money because it says something about your heart. And then also, I sincerely hope that our time today will help money release its grip on you because that's real and we all know it. And then lastly, as your pastors, as we shepherd the flock here at Imago Dei, and as we look at trends in the country and around the world and in marriage, we understand that money, finances, are one of the big three uh, causes for controversy or uh, conflict in marriage. Amen? Oh, that was weak. So, uh, so we're going to help you. See, that's conviction right there. So, uh, so now, after I've cleared my throat, 
Let's go, let's go ahead and jump into this text. And so, so Jesus was teaching uh, people how to take a stand fearlessly and live against all opposition. And so in verses 13 and 14, uh, Jesus was teaching, and a man, he says this. It says, someone stood up in the crowd, uh, uh, stood up and said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But uh, he said to him, Man, who made, me judge, uh, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And so we got ourselves a good old-fashioned family feud. Unfortunately, these aren't all too common or uncommon. Uh, and so what we see is that, you know, many of us have been in this situation. We're mourning the loss of a parent or a grandparent. And then when the will becomes public, the claws come out. And so this is exactly what's happening here. Some family feuds are legendary, like the Hatfields and McCoys, which those folks scare me. If you read about that story... And then there's some feuds that change the landscape of a city. I'm not sure if you know this, but Adidas and Puma were started by brothers who were in business together for about 30 years. And so they ran a factory in their hometown, and after tension arose with their wives, and then also they grew in, into different business philosophies. Uh, they, they, one brother took two-thirds of the employees, went to the other side of the river in the town, established a company that would eventually be called Puma, and the other brother stayed at their factory, and he rebranded re as Adidas. And then that, that town in Germany is literally split by that river down the middle. They all look good, though, because they all got fresh kicks. <laughs> but it's split down the middle is the point I'm trying to make. And so all this to say that brotherly spats are a dime a dozen. But this guy was bold enough to interrupt Jesus uh, to fix his situation. This guy was gutsy. Jesus was trying to help people, you know, uh, to, to live in the midst of opposition. He was like, okay, Jesus, wait, yeah, 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 whatever. Help me with my situation. My brother is messing with my money, is what he says. And then Jesus is great because um, what he does is that he pipes up in verse 14, and he says, um, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? He just brushed off the guy's question. Because this guy was doing what many of us do when we have a spat with somebody. We bring a spiritual authority into the mix, hoping that they would use their spiritual authority on our behalf in that situation. And so this is what many of us do. But true to form, Jesus was always looking for a teachable moment. And what he did is he offered this man a deeper answer to his shallow question. And so, as an aside for you all, uh, Jesus, he knew what his mission was. He was very clear on that, and that helped him here. Because there's many of us who can do lots of different things. Jesus could have got uh, into that mix and arbitrated this thing, got his hands all dirty with all that. But he said, you know what? I'm here. I'm preaching a kingdom. I know what I'm here to do. I'm not getting messed up with that. And so, some of you guys who are running around busy getting distracted by all kinds of things that are good things, but not the thing you're called to do, focus on that thing. Allow that goal that God has given you, the thing that he's asked you to put your hand to, to be the marker if you should get involved or not. And so you can chew on that for later. So here, Jesus says, I'm not messing with that. I'm actually going to answer the question that I'm interested in asking and answering. So Luke never stated the specific problem because it ultimately didn't matter because the core of this was ultimately greed. And so without knowing these details, it could have been that both uh, brothers were coveting, one who refused to divide the inheritance, and the other one was demanding what he thinks is his. 
And so this makes it clear that this text is for everybody. Jesus warns us to be on guard against all kinds of covetousness. And then now Jesus transitions to an illustration that demonstrates his angle of interest in this story. And so verse 15 to 21, it says, And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not con consist of the abundance of his possessions. And he told uh, them a parable saying, a land, a, the, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So, it is, uh, so is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. So this parable of the, of the rich fool is front-loaded with all of its meaning. And essentially, the meaning is this. It's like life is not found in the abundance of possessions. Life is not found in the abundance of earthly possessions. And so verse 15 says, be on your guard against all covetousness. And in the Greek, we see that the covetousness, which is really sort of reaching back to the uh, 10th commandment, is an inordinate or irrational desire for more. And so the man was obsessed with himself. And one clear sign of his self-absorption was his inner monologue. This dude was asking, he was asking himself questions, and he was given the answers. And in verse 16, we see that it says, The land of a rich man produced pl uh, plentifully. And what he didn't understand because of his self-absorption is that all that he had was a gift. Anybody who knows anything about agriculture, which I had to ask somebody, but someone had told me that this is a gift because we know God gives the rain. God is the one who makes the crop grow. God is the one who gives the increase. But then this man, he had nothing to do with that. He thinks that he accomplishes all on his own, so he sings a doxology to himself, redundant with first-person pronouns. His self-centeredness is appalling. And because of his uh, self-obsessed nature, his solution to his over overflowing barns is to build bigger ones to keep them for himself. And so before getting too far into this, you're like, ha-ha, this text is good because I don't own a barn. <laughs> this text is for somebody else. But you, you might have an investment portfolio. You might have a savings account. And in fact, greed stretches far beyond material things and includes coveting power or influence, or social standing. And so, but Jesus here is focused on material possessions. And so many Americans, or maybe it's just me, when you see somebody who has built a bigger barn, I mean, I wonder, I wonder what that guy does. I think, oh, what's his side hustle? I need to get on what he or she is on so I can build a bigger barn too. But listen to Jesus' question in verse 20. He says, the things you have prepared... Whose will they be? 
Because it says, you know what? Uh, so, so Jesus doesn't ask how he filled his barns. He asks, who will get the barns full of stuff that you have when you die? So the question makes the point that wealth is not just determined by earthly possessions. Jesus suggests that gaining earthly things alone is wanting far too little out of life. And it's very, very short-sighted. I'm not sure if you guys are like me. I wake up, I'm the first one up, up in my house in the morning. I look over at my sweet wife and she's like, and I'm like, oh, she's just so sweet. And then I'll go up the stairs and then I'll maybe sneak into my kids' rooms. I'll look at them and I'm like, man, I just want to give them everything this world has to offer. But then the Holy Spirit doesn't give me but two seconds to ruminate on that foolishness before he slaps me over the head and says, you dummy. Life is not found in cars or vacations or fancy clothes. If you give them that alone, you're selling them short. The kingdom is to be inherited by those who are in Christ. So if you really want them to be rich, you have to give them Jesus. The problem is this. Some of us actually might get what we're striving for. You might actually become rich, but Scripture says, He who loves money will not be satisfied by money nor he who loves wealth with his income. Ecclesiastes, again, boom. <laughs> so this might be exactly why Jesus didn't settle the situation in verses 13 and 14, because that money wouldn't satisfy his soul anyway. So possessions, they don't give us life. In fact, they might take life away from us. In fact, they demand from us the more stuff we have. Just ask the dude who has a nice beach house after a hurricane. He's stressed out. Ask the person who has a, a nice RV how much gas they put in it of late. And so uh, it has a lot of stress involved. And then we have to begin to, you know, uh, find jobs to maintain our ever-increasing lifestyle. So to say this, to put all of our eggs in the earthly material basket is just, it's just foolish. But we think, you know, I just want a little more, and just a little more, and then a little more, and then our wants that may seem small to begin with, they get a little bigger and bigger, and we're drawn towards discontent over time. And then our possessions, they begin to possess us until we are just given over into a covetous heart. So this pursuit will lead us down paths that we never imagined, because greed is a root sin. You guys, you guys ever show up to your growth group and people are repenting of greed? No, they don't. <laughs> I've never heard of it, unless my growth groups are not as spiritual as yours. But you often hear people lamenting over overworking to get more. You often hear people lamenting having bitterness because they don't have the life they think they deserve. And then also you hear people, you know, getting in the debt up to their eyeballs to maintain a certain lifestyle. So one way to recognize greed is via the sinful things it causes us to do. And so to this point in the sermon, it seems like this text is coming down on the wealthy. It's not. It's trying to crush greed and covetousness in us. And so scripture cuts against ungodliness no matter where it manifests. And so I think it's, it's helpful for us to see that the Bible, we see four kinds of different people as it pertains to their wealth. We see the righteous rich, we see the unrighteous rich, we see the righteous poor, and we see the unrighteous poor. 
And so as we think about the parable of the rich fool, this is certainly a situation of the unrighteous rich. But Scripture highlights also the, the wonderful things that people do who God has given great wealth to. And so, but, but it's certain that those who are wealthy have far more opportunities to get caught up in earthly mindedness, especially as it pertains to material possessions. So there's a, an example of a righteous rich man named Boaz. He's in the book of Ruth. You can find this little vignette during the time of the judges in the Old Testament. And so Ruth was a widow who took responsibility of her mother-in-law after her father-in-law, her husband, and brother-in-law died. And so you have a a woman who is in Moab. She says, hey, I'm going to take care of my mother-in-law. And so they're, they're destitute. They're women in a patriarchal society. All the wealth, all the land goes through the men. So these people have their backs against the wall. And then what this Moabitess does, she moves to Bethlehem, and now she's an immigrant. And so she's a, she, she has all the odds stacked up against her. And so now we see that Boaz had Ruth work on his property, or she just showed up. And this is the scene where they met in Ruth chapter 2, verse 5 to 9. It says, Boaz asked his servant who was in charge of the harvesters, whose young woman is this? And the servant answered, she is a young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi, her mother-in-law, from the, ter- from the territory of Moab. She asked, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? She came and has been on her feet since the early morning, except she has rested a little in the shelter. And then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, Don't go and gather grain in any other field. Don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which field they're harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered my young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go and drink from the jars the women or the the young men have filled. That's good stuff. So Boaz is no legalist. And we see here that he's doing far above and, below, uh, and beyond the law's requirements. So there's, there's no Ruth's success story without Boaz's faithfulness, is what I'm trying to say. In verses 8 and 9, we see that Boaz just overflows with generosity for her, requested that Ruth maintain or remain in that field with his hired women, not just getting the gleanings on the edges, which is what the law required, but having the first fruits of what his fruits bore. And also offered her protection from the men, saying, if you mess with her, you got to mess with me, and I'm the boss. And he also said, uh, you can have the water that's intended for my workers. So water was scarce back then. You didn't turn on a hose bib or go to your Brita filter and get water out. You had to bring water from somewhere. It It was intense. And so to give her water is an extension of great grace. So Boaz, he was a man of great means. He had numerous workers, a lot of land. Uh, a, a lot of crops, ample money to buy back Elimelech's land in chapter 4 of Ruth. He has influence at the city gates. I think it's safe to say that Boaz would have, was a man of great privilege. And I think it's true. But in our contemporary culture, the word privilege has become a lightning rod term that has been used as a bludgeon on people who have social or monetary means. I think Boaz helps us reimagine this term, this idea of privilege or power, away from something that we should be ashamed of uh, to something that ought to be stewarded. And so as we uh, steward our gifts, our abilities, our opportunities, it's important for us to learn another lesson from Boaz as well. He didn't have a savior complex. As after he th- she thanks him profusely in verse 10, Boaz reminded Ruth 
you know, of her true provider. And, and he says this in verse 12. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. And that's all the wonderful things she did towards her mother-in-law. And so he goes on and says, And may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. He's saying, but Boaz is like, hey, I'm not your savior. I mean, many of us would say, you know what, yes, you know, I did, I did a nice thing. I'm going to absorb all the praise. You know, no, no. You know, you're like, stop, stop, stop. Because we, we want everyone to know what we did. Take a picture, put it on, on the gram, or whatever you got to do to get the word out. I'm doing things. Boaz was like, no. I am simply a vessel through whom God is using to provide for his people. And this is what uh, this righteous rich man did. A wonderful example for us. And so now back to today's text in verses 19 to 21. This is one of the few times when God actually shows up in a parable. This, is, this, is, this man's pride was so thick, it took God himself giving him a wake-up call. He says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And because of this, you know, you will not eat. You will not drink, you will not be merry, because your riches and your pride will not sustain you. And also, uh, nor did you provide them in the first place. So the message is, you are not ultimate. And you did not sustain you know, your own lives by, by your own riches. So this man, he accumulated great and vast riches in this life, but he was impoverished in the next. And so this reminds me of the, the uh, conversation the wealthy man's accountant had with someone after he died. They asked, how much did he leave behind? And they said, it's succinct, all. Everything. We leave everything here unless we're rich towards God. So let's be clear, this doesn't, you know, forbid wealth. What it does is that it admonishes covetousness. So, but more importantly, we see in verse 21, it commends spiritual wealth because you can only enjoy earthly things without grabbing for more and more if you're satisfied in the Lord first. I'll say that again. I saw somebody writing it down. You can only enjoy earthly things without grabbing and wanting more if you are satisfied in the Lord first. So Jesus transitions from fixing uh, fixing his uh, eyes on money because of greed and now being anxious about money or resources. And so it says, be anxious uh, is is the next sort of subheading here in in our scriptures. So verse 22, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, uh, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor weep. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, you are, uh, why are you anxious about the rest? Then he, said, he transitions again, 27, consider the lilies, um, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, Solomon the great and wealthy king, in all of his glory, the grass. Which 
which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. So in these verses, Jesus is making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, you know, you see the ravens, the birds out there? They're not worrying. You see the grass out there? God even takes care of them and the lilies and things like that. And so he's saying, for you who are image bearers, for you who are his children, of course he has concern for you. So this section is sort of bound together by this word worry or the concept of anxiety. And we worry about all manner of things. There are some people who might be among us who are worrying about their needs, like food and clothing. And if you're in that place this morning, please let your church family know of your struggle. There is support here for you as you bear that emotional toll. And perhaps there's an opportunity for us to bear that burden directly because as the old preacher would say, everything that we need is in the room. Insisting that God has ordained this body to come together uh, with those who are in need and those who have extra. And there's also great folks in the room that can help with stewardship and all kinds of other things. But related to this, I think it's really neat that uh, there are those who might be the recipients of financial uh, help, but they might be rich in spirit, giving lavishly to others, even those who might even give to them monetarily. This is what it means to be a family. And so others might be worrying about uh, other things uh, and can't, because they can't distinguish between a need and a want. So we upgrade our needs to wants and worry about not getting what we want. You see how that works? We upgrade our needs to wants and we worry about not our needs, but our wants, not having those things. So the American dream is to have a walk-in pantry full of food, closets full of clothes that we only wear one time a year. But as Pastor Trevor reminded us uh, a couple weeks ago in the Lord's Prayer is that we ought to ask for our daily bread. This is a massive paradigm shift to ask for our daily bread, seeing that as our need uh, and not elevating you know, other things into wants. And I'll just be honest with you. I'm still sitting with that one. I'm, I've been so influenced by a culture that, um, that, that, that justifies greed that I'm trying to figure out what does it mean to actually only ask God for my daily needs. So all I'm going to do is put the Bible out there and say, y'all can deal with it because I don't have anything extra special to say about it because I'm, I'm still working on it. So there you go. So um, now we see that in verses 31 to 34, Jesus tells us how to escape covetousness and being anxious about not having enough. Verse 31 says, Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that, uh, that do not grow old, with treasure in, in the heavens that does not fail, where, you're, where, you're, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So here it is in a nutshell. If we focus on the kingdom, it reorders our desires. If we focus in on the kingdom, it reorders our desires. So the more we desire the kingdom, the less we'll worry. The, the less covetous we'll be. The less we'll want things. 
It's ironic that for the Christian, that the one thing we certainly have is the one thing that can actually fulfill us. Yet we spend all this time and energy toiling after all these things that if we get them, they'll fail us. So we have the kingdom focus on the kingdom of God that he has given us. We are heirs. We are recipients of all these things. Yet we're looking everywhere else to find fulfillment. This is foolishness. But we all fall for it so often. God help us. And so some of you are thinking, um, you know, this whole like generosity thing. You know, I, I knew that you were going to get to this at some point, asking me to give money. Because, you know, after all, somebody who, somebody who is delighting in the kingdom is able to give generously to kingdom work. But I would also say that, hear me though, the Lord doesn't need your little bit of money. He, he doesn't. He has cattle on a thousand hills. He has more resources than you can fathom. And so what's amazing is that even though God doesn't need our little bit of money, he actually uses our generosity for his purpose in real ways. Isn't that amazing? And so let's look back to Boaz. I'm, I'm a Boaz fan, Team Boaz here. And so uh, though he was, he was, through his generosity, Boaz focused his heart on the kingdom that will never leave him longing. And he weaned himself from the desires of this world because those things will always leave him wanting more. And so because of Boaz's generosity, he met a practical need. When someone was hungry, he gave them food. He also contributed to God's big story in Scripture uh, through, through his strategic giving because now, if, if you look to the end of Ruth, there's this genealogy, and by the way, you should read those. There's some stuff in there for us. Because at the end of that genealogy, it talks about Obed. If you look at uh, Matthew chapter 1, Obed is in the line, of, is the line of Jesus. And so what Boaz did with his generosity is to literally help the line of the Messiah sustain so that we're now all beneficiaries of his generosity. And so he offers us as well a, a, a picture of the Messiah. They call him the kinsman redeemer in, 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 in the book of Ruth. And so uh, he also, and this is good right here, through his generosity, he was a reminder of God's grace to Naomi in her time of need. Her husband just died. Her son dead. Her other son dead. And now, uh, through Boaz's generosity and the kindness of Ruth, God says, hey, Ruth, uh, uh, Naomi, I still see you. I'm still here for you. Your generosity towards kingdom ends can do these kinds of things. And so it, it really enables us to, to enable the beautiful feet of those who bring good news. And it also allows us to be the hands and feet of God to someone who is in the midst of a storm. Someone who's wondering, they're getting waylaid by the brokenness of the world. And they're wondering, is God even there? And then God sends his people to be his very hands and feet to read them the word of God when they can't read it through their tears. That's good news. And so God is not against you making money, but with a heart whose joy is not complete in it, or the stuff that it buys you. If you're rich towards God, then you'll be able to give and also spend with gladness. So as we, as we have some final reflections, this text makes me uh, think about the, 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 the concept of uh, color blindness, or I think color blindness, what am I thinking? Blind spots, there you go. <laughs> I haven't thought about color blindness in a long time. And so the concept of blind spots. So our generation, 
our, our blind spot is not like owning slaves or you know, an overt caste system or something like that. But we might conceive of the, the blind spots of our culture as being the abuse of power or sexual abuse or disregard for human life in the womb or things like that. And those are all terrible things. But I think the sneakiest thing that our, grand, our great-grandchildren will judge our generation about is the fact that we had all these monetary resources and we leveraged them for ourselves and not for the kingdom. So the easy application today would, for me to put like seven ministries up here on the, on the screen and that we all write as big a checks as we can, we tally the money up and then we put the number up there and we all, hooray! And then we walk out the door and we're just as attached to our stuff as we were when we came in. So I have some questions for us. I have six. My wife said I should do five, but I just couldn't figure out which one to eliminate. So uh, I have six questions for you to help you figure out how to uh, identify a covetous or a greedy heart. It says, you know, here's the first one. Do I feel entitled to what I don't have? Do I feel entitled to what I don't have? Secondly, do I disobey Scripture to get what I want? Do I do gymnastics with all my priorities? And am I so twisted to think that if I just do this for my family, but, you're, but that job you took and the promotion you took takes you away from the very people that you say you love and you're working for, is that really a gain? Third question, what does my bank and credit card records say about my priorities? And the fourth one is, is hard. I almost took it out because I didn't want to have to deal with myself. But uh, am I unhappy when others get what I want? For fifth, can I distinguish between a want or a need? And then lastly, do you avoid generosity because you want more for yourself? And so this is a plea to be free from your desire for more. Quit the rat race. Uh, ease the grind. Stop clamoring for more attention from your boss so you can get that promotion, so you can get all the stuff that you want. You'll never find fulfillment in it. And it's not because you won't get the promotion, but because our creator, God, has told us that joy and peace and fulfillment are found elsewhere. For the, for the unbeliever, this text is for you too. My question is, where is your fulfillment found? We know it's not found in stuff. Some of the richest people that we know and can see on, on TV are the most miserable. It's not working. We have to find it somewhere else. Where is your joy going to be found? And I encourage you know, those who are believers, find your joy in Christ and in his kingdom. And so for all of us, especially for those who are, are, are looking for fulfillment somewhere, but feel like you can't find it, and I, I want to tell you about a man named Jesus. He knows all the people that you crushed on your way to the top to get all that stuff you think you need. Jesus knows all the shady deals that you've done to get promoted. He knows all the relational bridges that you've burnt to get more and more. Yet still, he died for you. Yet still, he loves you. He'll have you. And he understands that, that you're as bad as you are, yet he is the one who knows that. And he died, rose from the dead, because your sin is not enough to keep him dead. On the third day, he got up. Because he loves you and I. And he's trying to relieve us from this burden of trying to find fulfillment somewhere else. Find that fulfillment in this Savior 
who is worthy of our trust, who is worthy of our adoration, worthy of our praise, and because of that, you're, you will be rich in heaven. And you might even get some things here too, but it won't really matter. Feel free to leverage them for the kingdom. You'll be freed to do that. Find joy in the Savior today. Find rest and peace and fulfillment in him today as well. So if you've never met Jesus, the one who can actually free you from your desires, we'd like to introduce you to him today. Come talk to me, one of the pastors, anybody who's getting ready to take the supper because they're a blood-bought son of the, of the king, and we'll be glad to help you understand how you can have access to the source of the truest joy that's out there. Uh, bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we're just so grateful that we're rich if we're in you, but rich by standards that are not the standards of our world. God, help us to actually believe in our hearts that that's the case. Help us to believe that if we pursue you, that is where fulfillment is found because there are messages uh, in our society that keep on coming, that just keep on coming, that tell us that we're to be fulfilled with the stuff that's out there. God, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for... Uh, the fact that we uh, don't take your word at its word enough. God, we thank you for those who here are here, who are stewarding their, what you've given them for your purposes. God, we also lift up those who are worrying today. Comfort them. Allow them to see that you love them. There's a body here who loves them and who doesn't want them to stay in that place. God, we are grateful that you can uh, pull them out of that worried state and God, we're grateful that as a body we can come around folks as they're, uh, as they're worrying. God, we do thank you for this day and for your word and how it continues to shape us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.